0: Hi everybody, thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Divine Lantern. I hope you've had another blessed week. I'm your host Myrna from the Church of the Dormition of the Theotokos in New South Wales. With the blessing of His Eminence Metropolitan Basilios, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese presents a podcast to educate, empower and enrich. On this week's episode, we'll be joined by Father Philip Saba from the Church of St Nicholas in New South Wales who will be discussing with us the importance of preparation for communion and why such an emphasis is placed on it within the Church, something I'm sure so many of us can learn from. This will be followed by readings from the Philokalia, as well as another installment of the Monasteries of the Patriarchate. Up first, Father Philip Saba.
1: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Blessed Lent, brothers and sisters. I would like to thank His Eminence Metropolitan Basilius and the team at the Divine Lantern for this opportunity to talk about a topic that is dear to my heart, how we can prepare ourselves in order to receive the divine gifts, the body and blood of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. This is a major topic that we can talk about for hours on end so today i want to talk about it on a very practical level hoping that we can all take away something new that we can apply in our preparation for the sacrament holy communion or the holy eucharist is the climax of the divine liturgy it is the par excellence way that we can commune with our lord and savior which is our ultimate purpose in life communion with god becoming godlike with a little g in other words, theosis. Unfortunately, having communion has become routine in our lives, just something that we do every Sunday. We line up, open our mouths, consume the gifts, go back to our seats, and repeat the steps all over again the following week. It is like we have forgotten what an awesome and phenomenal mystery we are experiencing. We feel like we are entitled to commune, like it is our right forgetting that we do not take Holy Communion, but rather we partake. It is a gift, a medication, a special grace given to us by God to commune with Him for forgiveness of sins and the inheritance of eternal life. A mystery this profound requires preparation. It requires awareness, contemplation, and action. But what can we do to better prepare ourselves to receive the body and blood of Christ. Today, I would like to talk about four things that can help. Prayer, fasting, reconciliation with our neighbour, and confession. Did you know that there are certain prayers that should be prayed before and after receiving Holy Communion? I am not just talking about the prayers we say in the church immediately before receiving Communion, for example, I believe, O Lord, and I confess, I mean a whole set of prayers written by our church fathers such as St. Basil the Great, St. John Chrysostom and St. John of Damascus that help prepare our mind and our soul to receive Christ. Prayers which help us contemplate and examine our conscience before communion. Prayers that remind us of the significance and awesomeness of the sacrament. Prayers that teach us how to pray, that remind us of God's love and mercy for mankind. A reminder that although we can never be fully worthy to receive Christ into our souls and bodies, that his grace and love overcomes all. But how can we find these prayers? And when exactly do we pray them? With the blessing of his eminence, the Liturgics Committee of our Archdiocese has prepared a PDF booklet which includes all the necessary prayers as well as instructions on when they should be prayed. This book titled... Preparation and Thanksgiving for Holy Communion can be found on the Archdiocese website www.antiochian.org.au by clicking on the Resources tab, then Service Books, and finally Holy Communion Preparation and Thanksgiving. The prayers are broken into four parts. The first is known as the Canon, which is read with the small compline the prayers before going to sleep, the evening before the Liturgy. Here is just an example of some of these beautiful prayers. Glory to you, our God, glory to you. May your immaculate body and divine blood be for the forgiveness of my offences, for communion with the Holy Spirit, and for life everlasting, O lover of mankind, and for estrangement from passions and sorrows. Glory to you, our God, glory to you. May I be sanctified in body and soul, O Master. May I be enlightened, may I be saved, may I become your dwelling place by the communion of the sacred mysteries, having you with the Father and the Spirit abiding in me, O most merciful benefactor. The second part are psalms and prayers read in the morning or before attending a liturgy. The third are the prayers read in the church immediately before receiving communion, I believe O Lord and I confess, and receive me today, etc., And the final part are the thanksgiving prayers prayed at the conclusion of the divine liturgy or privately afterwards where we give thanks to God for the gifts we have received. For someone who has never heard of these prayers this might all sound quite overwhelming but if we slowly start the practice of including them in our prayer rule we will surely notice the spiritual benefit they provide and how much more meaning is added to our experience of partaking in communion. And as an encouragement for our youth and English-speaking communities, many of our parishes which hold evening liturgies on Sunday nights have started the practice of including the prayers before and after the Divine Liturgy to help teach and guide their community. For example, at St. Nicholas Punchbowl, where an English liturgy is held every Sunday at 6pm, the choir reads the preparatory prayers at 5.30pm each week. And following the Divine Liturgy, we also read the prayers of thanksgiving after receiving communion, making it a lot easier for parishioners to include these prayers in their prayer rule. I highly encourage you to speak to your parish priest to get more information about these prayers and when your parish reads them. Who knows, you might even encourage the practice if it is not already being done. The second way we should prepare for Holy Communion is by fasting. Christ teaches us, That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Therefore, fasting reminds us that our primary food and sustenance is God before any physical food. Just as prayers before communion help prepare our mind and soul to receive Christ, fasting helps us to prepare our bodies to receive Him. For what could be more fulfilling? What could be more edifying? Than the body and blood of our Saviour. I am the bread of life, says Christ. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. John chapter 6, verse 35. If we are attending a divine liturgy on Sunday morning, the church prescribes a light dinner on Saturday night and a fast, abstaining from food and water from midnight. A common practice in our parishes is the English liturgy on Sunday evenings at 6pm. Technically, if we are attending a liturgy in the evening, we should abstain from food for the whole day, but this can be very dangerous for a person who has not trained their body or is not used to fasting this way. Therefore, the general advice given to those attending an English liturgy in the evening is to have a light lunch at around 12pm or before, and then to abstain from food and water, to prepare one's body to receive the true source of life and sustenance. Ultimately, one should consult their spiritual father, confessor father or parish priest regarding fasting, especially those who for medical reasons might not physically be able to do so. The third and one of the most important ways to prepare for communion involves reconciliation or making peace with our neighbour, who we have wronged or who have wronged us. Christ says therefore if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your gift there before the altar and go your way first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift Matthew chapter 5 verses 23 to 24 before Christ's death and resurrection the ultimate sacrifice the people would make an offering or burnt sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins Christ was teaching them that they must first make peace with and ask for forgiveness from one another before asking for forgiveness from God. In the same way, before we approach the chalice to receive forgiveness of sins through the divine gifts, we must also make peace and seek forgiveness from our neighbor first. For how can we seek to commune with God if we are at enmity with our brother who was made in the image and likeness of God? The pre-communion prayers are a great reminder for this point. As we read them, we are advised, first reconcile yourself with them that grieve you, then with daring, venture to eat the mystic food. And if we need more time to overcome our hurt and pain, take the time, but also refrain from communing until that reconciliation has been made. The fourth and last point I would like to discuss in preparation for communion Is the sacrament of confession. Establishing a confessional relationship with a priest and partaking in this sacrament is necessary for every Orthodox Christian. Before his ascension, Christ gave his apostles the authority to forgive sins. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. John chapter 20, verses 22 to 23. This authority has been passed down from the apostles unto our modern-day bishops and priests through apostolic succession. But what is the link with Holy Communion? When we were baptized and chrismated into the Orthodox Church, we became full members of the Church, members of the Body of Christ, which entitled us to receive Holy Communion. When we sin, we sin both against God and our neighbor, and thus we fall away from the Church temporarily losing membership to the body. It is through the sacrament of confession that we are reconciled to God and the Church, allowing us to once again partake of the body and blood of our Saviour. Ultimately, your confessor father or spiritual father will guide you as to whether or not you should abstain from communion and for how long, depending on your personal situation. As you can see, this is a very big topic to tackle in such a small amount of time, but I hope that we can all incorporate something additional into our preparations. If a lot of this was new and overwhelming for you, don't be alarmed. I give the same advice that I was given when I first learned of these things, and that is to start incorporating them slowly into your preparation. Download the prayer book. Seek advice on fasting and confession from your spiritual father, confessor father, or parish priest. Always aim to be at peace with your neighbor, and always remember to call on Christ for help with everything you do, for with God all things are possible. After all, doesn't such an awe-inspiring gift deserve an awe-inspiring effort? Blessed Lent to you and your families.
0: Thank you, Father, for that encouraging message. And now a series of readings from the Philokalia. Take your weekly spiritual dose and reflect on the words of our holy neptic fathers with this week's Philokalic Nourishment. Search the scriptures and you will find the commandments. Do what they say and you will be freed from your passions. Saint Thalassios the Libyan. If some shameful thought is sown in your heart as you are sitting in your cell, watch out. Resist the evil, so that it does not gain control over you. Make every effort to call God to mind, for He is looking at you, and whatever you are thinking in your heart is plainly visible to Him. Say to your soul, if you are afraid of sinners like yourself seeing your sins, how much more should you be afraid of God who knows everything? As a result of this warning, The fear of God will be revealed in your soul, and if you cleave to him you will not be shaken by the passions, for it is written, They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, he that dwells in Jerusalem shall never be shaken. Whatever you are doing, remember that God sees all your thoughts, and then you will never sin. Saint Isaiah the Solitary Love alone harmoniously joins all created things with God and with each other. Saint Thalassios the Libyan.
2: On the tenth of April, in the Holy Orthodox Church, we commemorate the martyrs Terence and Pompey of Carthage, and those with them, the new Hieromartyr Gregory V, Patriarch of Constantinople, and new Martyr Demas of Smyrna. On the same day, the fifth Sunday of Great Lent. It was ordained that we make remembrance of our godly mother, St. Mary of Egypt. Spirit rose up, flesh melted away erewhile. Hide, O earth, the worn bones of Mary's body. Once, during the honorable fast, the priest monk Zosimas withdrew into the wilderness. He caught sight of a withered woman named Mary. Her hair was white as snow. Mary then told Zosimas that she was born in Egypt, and at the age of twelve, began to live a life of debauchery in Alexandria for 17 years. One day, she went to Jerusalem to enter the church to venerate the honourable cross. However, some invisible force restrained her. In great fear, she gazed upon the icon of the Theotokos in the vestibule and prayed that she be allowed to enter the church, all the while confessing her sinfulness. She was then permitted to enter the church. Having venerated the cross, she again entered the vestibule and before the icon, gave thanks to the Mother of God. At that very moment, she heard a voice saying, If you cross the Jordan, you will find glorious rest. Mary left for the wilderness and remained there for 47 years in repentance. She bade Zosimas to come back in one year with Holy Communion, which he did. The following year, on Holy Thursday, April 1st in the year 522, Zosimas discovered Mary's lifeless body and buried her. Thus, the Lord glorifies penitent sinners. The Church exalts and exemplifies Mary to the faithful in great Lent as an incentive for repentance that brings entry into the kingdom of heaven. Through her intercessions, O Christ God, have mercy upon us. Amen.
0: Do you know what holy tradition is in the Orthodox Church? The answer's coming up after the break. tradition refers to the deposit of faith given by Christ to the Apostles and passed on within the Orthodox Church from generation to generation, without addition, alteration or subtraction. This deposit of faith is transmitted to the members of the Orthodox Church from the Apostles of Jesus Christ, both by word of mouth and in writing which includes the oral traditions of the Orthodox Church as well as the scriptures. Holy Tradition is also transmitted through the liturgy, the writings of the Fathers, iconography, church architecture, and so on. Now, one may ask, how are all these things related to one another? Or, which part of Holy Tradition is the most important? The best way to think about this is to liken Holy Tradition to a body. When St. Paul compares the church to a body, he writes that although a body consists of different members, all members which have their own vital role to play are necessarily interconnected and are considered essential to the integrity of the body. Similarly, we cannot imagine one member of holy tradition existing apart from one another. For example, the liturgy and the scriptures cannot be separated and must be viewed together. The scriptures are quoted constantly in the liturgy and it was the liturgical life of the church that helped shape the canon of scriptures. Of course, since holy tradition is part of the Orthodox Church, which is the body of Christ, we must believe that holy tradition preserves the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. However, Holy tradition is not the mindless repetition and preservation of past customs simply for their own sake. We don't do things in the Orthodox Church simply because that's how we've always done it. Tradition is not something static and dead, but rather dynamic and alive. As the theologian, Jaroslav Pelikan, a convert to the Orthodox faith, once said, Tradition is the living faith of the dead traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. However, it may be more accurate to say that holy tradition is a living faith of the living. For as Christ said himself, God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Thus, we must see holy tradition as the life of the Holy Spirit in the church, which finds expression in different contexts from generation to generation throughout the ages. The following segment, Monasteries of our Patriarchate, will take you on a journey through the profound Orthodox monasteries specific to Antioch and all the East. We hope you gain greater insight and appreciation into the geography, history, contributions, miraculous recounts and spiritual guidance these revered sites and their inhabitants provide for the nourishment of the wider Orthodox community. Monastery
3: of St George, Der Ar-Half. Cradled in the arms of a pine forest in central Lebanon lies the Monastery of St George located in Del El Harf. Situated in the upper Metin district, it is located 28 kilometres from Beirut and is elevated 1,040 metres above the sea. On the west of the monastery, the view of the sea emerges resplendently and on the east, a view of the mountain rises strongly. Towards the north and south of the monastery are various villages. The monastery covers an area of 1,450 metres and is L-shaped surrounding an interior court which houses a garden. The ground floor has a main room for visitors. Of the various buildings in the monastery, there is a winter salon and an east wing which contains a kitchen, a dining room and service rooms. The upper floor possesses a gallery with five monastic cells and the library. Seder al-Harif also has visitors' rooms, a workshop, a well, and a funerary crypt beneath the church. The founding of the monastery is intertwined with a traditional account of an Orthodox shepherd, Wahber ibn Mahsin al-Lahmeh, who as a youth fled from a proposed marriage with his first cousin, disapproved by the church. He journeyed for many days through unfamiliar terrain with the hopes of joining a monastery. As the shepherd fell asleep under a tree, there appeared to him a vision of a figure on a white horse, St. George, who told him to remain in this place, which happened to be the site of an ancient monastery, destroyed due to the inhospitality and greed of its occupants. Vehbeh obeyed this instruction. In the year 1409, a Amir emir founded a church on this site honouring St. George, to whom he attributed a recent victory in battle. The emir also donated lands, hence restoring the site of Deir el-Half. Two years later, the shepherd Wehbeb reposed at the age of 105. Historically, the area in which the monastery of St. George is located appears to have been inhabited in classical times, as revealed by artefacts such as coins and pottery. Also, oral tradition relates of a Crusader-era monastery, destroyed by the Mamluk Sultan Baybars in the 13th century. Not much is known about the monastery itself until the 18th century, where the earliest of 16 remaining manuscripts was copied in 1704, and the list of father superiors assigned by the Bishop of Beirut begins in 1790, with a continuous list extending to the present day. However, the continuity of monastic life in the St George Monastery was precarious or unstable since many political disturbances resulted in its closure. For instance, following the Druze revolt against the French mandate in 1925 to 26, the monastery barely functioned for 30 years, even with three attempts at revitalizing it. In November of 1957, Metropolitan Elias Karam of Mount Lebanon finally restored the Deir el-Harif Monastery, establishing a small community of firstly six months, mostly emerging from the Orthodox youth movement. In the 1960s and 70s, the monks provided pastoral care to inhabitants of nearby villages, and Father Elias Moros, the igumen of the monastery from 1961, provided liturgical courses at the Balamund Theological Institute, Thus, monastic life functioned continually there except during the Lebanese Civil War from 1983 to 1987. Since the end of the war, the Monastery of St George has been fully restored. Literary activity is significant in the St George Monastery. Before the Civil War in 1975, 4,000 religious and historical books were gathered and assembled. In the 1960s, the monks edited a two-yearly publication, which included biblical commentaries, articles on the monastic life, sayings and texts from the Church and Desert Fathers, and studies on the liturgy. The monks have translated 11 religious works since 1971, and have published 7 books, which have wide circulations and have even been reprinted. St. George, Deir El harif and other monasteries have recently founded an informal publishing house specialising in monastic literature. The Monastery of St. George belongs to the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Mount Lebanon. It follows the monastic rule of all Orthodox monasteries with the traditions handed down by the monastic fathers. The monastery's tasks include prayer, contemplation, spiritual reading, manual labour in agricultural tasks, hospitality and serving in the liturgy. More recently, the monks undertake work in writing and restoring old icons. Dada al hadif maintains strong ties with the Orthodox youth movement, being the site of regular summer camps for young people, providing youth with spiritual nourishment and opportunities for prayer and spiritual growth. Visitors are also welcome and are free to learn about the riches of Orthodox monastic life. The church within the monastery is adorned with icons for the faithful to contemplate and learn from. The wooden iconostasis dates from the 19th century and was restored between 1962 and 1963. It depicts the Theotokos in the Hodegetria type and Christ the King in an elaborate style. These icons were written by a deacon from Crete called Gideon who resided at the monastery. The interior walls of the church are adorned with frescoes representing the life of Christ and manifestations of his divinity, his nativity, the transfiguration, the descent into Hades, and the appearance to St. Thomas. A multitude of saints are also depicted, the four evangelists as well as a host of monastic saints, martyrs, and theologians. Interestingly, two Romanian saints are depicted in the frescoes, Suggesting the strong tie at Dera el Hadif between the Orthodox churches of Lebanon and Romania. Thus, the monastery of St. George Dera el Hadif provides a rich history of spiritual abundance as a jewel in the mountains of Lebanon.
0: Thank you everybody for joining us again for another incredible episode of the divine lantern if you liked what you heard please make sure you like and subscribe to our podcast series and share the episodes with your friends and families we'll catch you again next week